Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all, the brave Labor Day crowd. I uh, hope you um, this contributes and uh, helps you enjoy your long weekend. It is a bit of a downer of a psalm, so sorry about that. Uh, but we are in the last psalm of our series uh, through the summer. We have um, started in Psalm 1, and we have marched all the way through 14 psalms. And we're in Psalm 14 uh, this morning, and we'll pick up our next series in Ruth uh, after this Sunday. But as is only appropriate, I think, um, we get, we, we have had, there. I forgot to count, I meant to do this before I came up here, of how many laments we have had in these first um, 14 Psalms. I remember Colin Newberry up here at Community Group mentioned that the last Psalm that we did, 13, was one of the happiest we had done yet, and it was quasi-happy. Um, but um, uh, that's, that's one of the rich characters of the Psalms in that it, it, it grounds us in reality and brings us um, in, in the depths of who we are to the simplicity of faith. But what we're going to have here this morning is a lament. I mean, it is lamenty fresh. It is a fully baked um, kind of lament. Um, and I think that it's going to bring up and tie together a lot of these themes that we have seen through the rest of the summer. So... Uh, let me, let's go to the passage and read it. Uh, it's printed for you in your worship folder. Um, uh, you're welcome to look it up in a Bible if you would like. This is Psalm 14. Uh, it's a Psalm of David. This is God's word. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before we begin. Father, would you help us to to grapple with, uh, to understand, um, and to embrace your word for us this morning? Uh, Would you take these humble words, uh, would you amplify them and make your, um, your good news clear? And would you build us all up in that um, as we go out of here today? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I titled this, ser- this sermon, Everything is Not Awesome. Um, if you're a, f- a Lego fan, my kids uh, uh, really like the Lego movies, and there's this song that goes, everything is awesome, everything is cool, and you're a part of a team. Um, and this is exactly the opposite of that. Um, sometimes I think it's very relatable in that too, because there is sometimes when, um, you just, you hit one of those points in mood or in life where you look around and the only thing that you can see is evil, that evil is everywhere. There is no good, no matter what we do, no matter where we turn and look, evil just seems to be everywhere. Um, you might have had a day um, that, that, that almost this exact day where you get up, you wake up in the morning to um, complaining about the cereals that are on offer, and then you get in the car and you listen to radio news on the way there and you hear about some tra- travesty that's going on uh, across the ocean. 
and you get into the office and there's the same petty uh, backbiting um, that's going on there in the office. And then you get a text from a friend um, who is venting about um, how somebody has really mistreated them. And then you get on social media and you see somebody ranting against something that you really care about quite a lot. Um, and all of the comments coming in agreement with that. Um, and then you get home and the dishwasher is not loaded the way it's supposed to be. And that is just the last straw. Um, evil is absolutely everywhere. There is no good. Um, all people um, just seem to be rotten at the core and it feels hopeless. We have all been in that mood. We have all had that day. Um, and this might, so for some of us, this is a more prevalent um, sensation than others. For some of this, us, that this is a long-term feeling um, of that evil is everywhere and that there is no good. And we have great fellowship here in this psalm uh, with this psalm writer. And that we see that, you know, God actually engages with this. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't say to get over yourself, but he enters in. He hands us these words. He gives us this feeds feelings because he knows that they're there. Uh, but he also leads. And in that, he knows it in us when we are experiencing these feelings that there's a lot of things going on inside of us. One, we want to understand. We just want to make sense of life, why it is the way that it is, um, and how we're going to move forward. But secondly, there's that deeper question from that that comes up is that what can we really depend on at the end of the day? Because it can feel like the things that we have been doing, the things that we have been depending on, um, they're just not working the same way that they used to. That we've been giving our lives to something in particular, and yet evil seems to be everywhere, and that kind of brings us into a sense of crisis. Um, what do we do? Um, and we have a lot of options. We can grow hard. We can grow cynical. Um, we can go our own way. But we've been handed this because there is a much better way than that. And it is fully characterized, not by us, but by the grace of God. And that this psalm actually reaches in and speaks to all of these questions, I think. But I think by the time we get to the end of it, then we're actually going to see that God is actually going to give us more than we are asking for. And that the grace that he is offering is not just an answer to the questions and to the issues we have, but it is actually something that overflows. I think he is going to, he expands um, or even our expectation of himself and who he is um, and how big his grace actually is for us. Um, so I think what is, there's got three points here. Um, one is that as he's expanding our mind, um, he's, uh, he's going to give us a deeper diagnosis um, of what the problem is in the first place. He's going to give us a deeper solution, and then we'll land on some application at the end, a deeper longing. So first we'll jump in here first in verse 1. Um, that God actually, uh, he gives us a deeper diagnosis. And so you see here again in the first place um, where the psalm writer is lamenting, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. And this is, this is someone who pr probably at this point uh, primarily has in mind a Gentile audience. So th these are the people out who are um, um, not calling on the name of the Lord. Um, and so and God actually enters into that point um, and is almost is affirming and uh, stepping into that space of lament um, and saying, you're right. Um, there is a lot of evil out there. Like, I will agree with you on that point. Um, and it all starts there of God stepping into that space and um, connecting 
on what the problem here, what, what the problem is. But he kind of puts flesh on this and explains um, a little bit of this question, what is this evil? Um, it starts talking about the fool. This is a word that comes up in the wisdom literature a lot, and it almost never means somebody who does not have uh, intellect. It almost always is a word that characterizes someone who has a stubborn rejection of wisdom. That they may have a lot of intellect, they may have a lot of understanding, but at the core, um, there is this stubbornness to be to go their own way and to do their own thing to, despite whatever counsel or whatever wisdom might be out there. But what are they saying? They're saying that the fool says in his heart, there's no God. And when we read this, we probably think of something like philosophical atheism, like does God exist or does, not, does God not exist? Um, that's probably not what is going on here in this passage. This is a world uh, that is full of gods, that everything in life um, goes through um, um, some kind of deity in some sense. But so what this is, this is, this is the words of somebody who it's not that they don't recognize that there is a God there, but that, this, that whoever is there has no real um, involvement in life as it is. They have no real uh, impact upon the lives of people. There are no real consequences um, that, this, that this God is going to offer. And so it becomes what they call a functional atheism, is that this is a what seems the most wise in their eyes is to go about life as if um, God is not a relevant entity at all. He's not a source for wisdom. He's not really a source for comfort. He's not going to bring any consequences at the end of the day. And so what we see here, what this is kind of peeling back the curtain and giving us a little bit of a a view of what um, the problem actually is um, and what sin is. That sin actually comes from this place in the heart. It is not just a not keeping of God's rules, but it's a relational thing. And that is core. Derek Kidner, he's a commentator, he says this real well, that sin implies the effrontery of supposedly knowing better than God and the corruption of loving evil more than good. That there is no God is treated in Scripture not as, a sincere, not as a sincere, if misguided, conviction, but as an irresponsible gesture of defiance. What sin is at its core, what he says, is supposedly knowing better than God. That what we have in our own wisdom, um, our own faculties, our own capacity, is enough to be, to be able to make decisions on our own, uh, the way that we would like to make them. Um, and this can look like a lot of things. Um, if we kind of drill this down into our time and space, is that uh, we can think about this in terms of ethics, and that what's right or wrong, uh, what is the most fulfilling and what is the most not fulfilling way in the way of life, uh, that we might look at what God has to say, but at the end of the day, it's us who is going to decide what is the best life, uh, what is the best way to be happy. I think when we're confronted with confusion and uncertainty, that it's us. It's us has to be, at the end of the day, the ones who can say and who can judge what is the most dependable way um, and what is the most not dependable way. Um, how to handle others, how to respond to other people is ultimately down to us. Nobody else can really tell us how to do that. How to medicate our own wounds ultimately comes down to us. Um, how to protect ourselves from other people is ultimately we are the ones to decide those. Uh, unwillingness to entrust these things to God even gets down to what is real. 
in terms of what is good and bad. I was just having a conversation with someone this week and just and lamenting myself about the fact that why is it that the evil in the world often seems so much more real than the good? Like it just has a weight to it. That cynicism has a kind of comfort to it. That this is our, it just seems more real. Pessimism seems more, tr- more trustworthy than hope. It's a safer thing. And so I say that to illustrate is that um, the problem that we are encountering in the world uh, with the fact that evil is everywhere, it is. But it is much more subtle and it is much more deep than even we realize. And that we see plenty of examples of where it has fully flowered. Um, and these are the things that we, we notice and that we really lament. But I think we're already getting the picture as we unpack what this looks like is that that this is not just something that is just out there. This is not just something that is a problem with other people. But I think who in this room would not relate to some of these things? And that evil is not just out there, but it is also something in here too. It is a deeper problem than we actually realize. That all of what the source of where all evil comes from, it comes from a fundamental disposition of trust towards God. Or of distrust towards God. And it has, might not, this doesn't mean that every person is a terrible person. And this doesn't mean that evil has fully flowered in everyone's life. But it does mean the same seed of a disposition towards God is in all people everywhere. Like we could take a group of people and we could move them to Mars and we could put them on a colony and it's not going to take care of evil because what's going to come with it? It's us. And if we keep reading, this is why this is a deeper diagnosis because it's almost like we get a bait and switch here and that God meets us at this point and says, you're right. I see evil everywhere. But look what he says if we keep writing. But the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see, um, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so there we have it. The suspicion that we had even in jumping in here is true. And that God is showing us that there is a big problem out there. But it is actually a deeper problem than you realize. That there is something fundamental that is inside of all people that gives birth to life as it is we know it, um, of what we lament. Um, and I just want to ask you, one question is a practical application point uh, before we move on. That when we deal with other people in this, I think it's good that we always ask ourselves, do you, do you see yourself in your enemy? When you're in an ideological argument with somebody else, like, you don't have to agree with them, and you might be right. But do you have the ability to see yourself in your opponent? Because there is a level where we are all coming to the same God with the same fundamental disposition towards him and the same seed of all of this stuff that we are frustrated with. It bears some little bit in each one of us. We all have that in common in some way. And so in the first place, this is not really helpful I think, and, and, and maybe in our mind, this is not really helpful. It's a curious way that God brings us in. He meets us in this lament, but he actually makes us bigger. Like he brings us towards this point of a holy despair 
um, where of, of, of giving us a deeper diagnosis, of giving us bigger eyes to see that the problem is a lot deeper than we might have bargained for. So what does he do there at that point? And I think in, in addition to giving us a deeper diagnosis, he actually gives us a much deeper solution at the same time. And this has not anything to do with any human being. This does not have to do with you. It doesn't have to do with me. It doesn't have to do with anybody's smarts. And that it is the grace of God that the solution to all of these things is the grace of God that has been poured out on human beings from outside of us as a pure gift from him. Um, And in a nutshell, what this looks like is that the responsibility for this problem that God is moving off of the shoulders of you and me and other human beings, and he is putting the weight of this issue on his own shoulders so that he can carry it for us. Let me jump in and unpack this a little bit. If you see down here, verses 4 and 5, whereas the first few verses kind of collected everybody together, we see um, a bit of a differentiation of two different types of people here, starting in verse 4. Um, they have no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do, do not call upon the Lord. That's the corruption that comes from sin. There's almost this uh, self-justification to this. It's like eating bread. That if, you know, there's a group who is detached from God, who, that it becomes a necessity to take care of oneself, uh, to provide for the, um, the fundamental needs on their own. But they are these who do not call upon the Lord. Um, they are not more righteous or more unrighteous, but the distinguishing factor is worship of, of calling upon the Lord. We go down in verse 5, he says, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. And you would shame the plans of the poor, for the Lord is his refuge. The righteous and the poor are the opposite of who we saw here in verse 4, so they're probably the same group of people. And you see the righteous, like, wait a second. Is this contradictory? We just saw in the first part of this section that there is none righteous, not no, not one. There is not one single person who seeks God. But what this is describing, this is describing the covenant relationship that God has given to his people by grace. And that when all are wandering, going their own way, that God revealed himself to a particular people. Uh, And this was the people of Israel um, in history. He provided a way, even for sinful people, to dwell within his presence. And he is saying here that through this, that he dwells with this particular group of people. And this is the distinguishing factor. It is not their righteousness. It is who dwells with them. It is the responsibility has been, is not rest on this people, but it rests on God himself. That God provided a way through atonement, through sacrifices, through washing, that this sinful group of people, sinful as they are, they could actually dwell in a community with this God in their midst. We're going to get to in a second, but this is what Zion is. The special part about Zion in verse 7 is that this is the place where God dwells. God has called this people their own and he has cleansed them so that he could dwell there with them. But it's not just atonement. Who is he? is that he calls himself um, the refuge for the poor. And that despite what it might seem, despite what evil it might seem uh, out there, despite how apparent this might be, that God has covenanted himself that he is the defender of the poor. That in calling this people their own, he has attached them to him. He has attached, you know, their reputation is attached to him. 
in giving a covenant to these people, it matters to God whether they succeed or whether they fail. That God has come to dwell with His people. He has become their refuge. He has taken the burden of all of the sin, all of the weight, all of the evil, and put it on Himself. And He has declared Himself to be worthy to handle it. And this is, this is a fundamental difference. He does not give a word of instruction. He gives Himself. He gives somebody who is big and who is strong enough to handle it on our behalf. Let me just give you one illustration. I used to work in summer camps um, and would, uh, middle schoolers, early high schoolers, would help them belay uh, from the top of the climbing wall. Any of you ever done that? Uh, You're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, So they would climb up. They're nervous. They're nervous to be at the top. And they're all hooked up in this rope. And then you ask them to belay. And what do they do? I mean, they white knuckle on this wall um, and refuse to let go and to come down. Because the only tangible security and hope that they have of what they feel is in this grip that they have on top of the wall and they're terrified. But what happens when you actually let go? When you actually let go, you realize that you have a much stronger thing attached to you than you do in your own fingers and your own grip, and that's the rope. And as soon as you feel it, as soon as you step back, and as soon as you lean on the rope and start bouncing off that wall, It's like the fear of heights kind of goes away. It becomes fun. They start bouncing up and bouncing all around. And there's a sense of freedom that comes with it. And here's where this intersects with you and me. Because a lot of us are so tired of dealing with the evil every day. Of dealing with the wounds inside of our own lives. um, Of dealing with the corruption that we see everywhere. That our hands in self-protection are just like this. And we're exhausted. We're worried about our kids. We're worried about our future. We're worried about the state of society. We're worried about all of these things. When what God has given is he has covenanted himself with you and you don't have to do that. It doesn't come down to your strength. It doesn't come down to your ability to control. It has to do with his promise that he has made with you, that he made sure on the cross. He is able to cover your sin. He is able to cover everybody else's sin. He is able to keep you safe in his own way. And what this does, this frees us up tremendously, that even how we respond to other people, we don't have to react against other people in the same way that we used to, in anxiety and control. But we actually have somebody in this frustration. We have someone we can pour out our frustration to. Because we have him, because he has given himself to us, that we can vent all day long about the frustration that we feel about the evil everywhere to him. And he can take it. Um, I also heard this week, it is better for us to sin against God than it is to sin against other people. And you can take that the wrong way, but I think you can get the point. He can take it. When you are frustrated and when you are hurting, he is a safe place to go to and to bear your soul because he will take care of you and he will see you to the end. This is a much deeper solution we have in Jesus. Uh, but there's, there's still a point that's nagging. I think if you're like me, that um, a little bit of unsatisfactory is that that promise is good, but the evil still remains somewhat. And what does that mean? What does life look like in the in-between? 
um, as we are struggling with these things, if we're struggling with this walk of faith. And I think that this last verse, verse 7, speaks to um, some of this a little bit. You see how it phrases this? It says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortune of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. It leaves us with a word of longing. Oh, that the Lord would act. Oh, that he would come now. Oh, that he would fully restore, fully cash in on these promises that he has given us. And he actually is going to lead us out of this psalm with a deeper longing. And that longing is going to come in a couple of ways. First, it gives us a deeper groaning. Because when we catch the grace of God, when we catch the promises of what he has given to us, then there's a sense in which the evil around us, it almost gets less tolerable. Because we know that that's not the way it's supposed to be. That compromising of self-protection, of just getting the, be- the most we can out of life in the best way we can, that's not the good way. That there is something much better that is there, that is waiting. And the goodness of God, uh, his promise to us is calling us forward, and it is giving us a much deeper longing for something better than we can have now. But that's not, o- that's not the only longing that it gives us. And I just want to give you, to just show you a little bit of how this psalm has functioned. If we trace, if this has been a hymn that was given to the people of God to sing through the elements of Israel's history, then here's what would happen. Okay? So, this is the cry that salvation would come out of Zion. This is the dwelling place of God. This is the special thing about Israel was that God dwelled in their midst. And what happened with Israel, if you follow the story? That eventually they rebelled so hard against God that God said, enough, for your own good and for the sake of the nations, that my name is so sully that this cannot continue. And he kicked them out of Zion into exile for a time. Jerusalem was destroyed. But despite that, despite the worst that they could do um, to God, Zion was the point through which, again, a much better hope was going to come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the worst, the depth of where Israel had fallen short was also the point where God proved his faithfulness the most. But it's more than that. We catch here that, um, that the, a lot of the lament here is directed towards the Gentiles, to those outside of this community. But when we get, so especially when Paul was going to pick up this verse in Romans 1, he actually uses this psalm to show that there is none righteous, not even one, not Gentile and not Jew. But this was through the point where he was showing that in Jesus, not only that he did he deal with the evil of the Gentiles, he actually invited the Gentiles in. That this was a movement of reconciliation that Jesus was about. And not only did he invite the Gentiles in, but he used his own people who had rejected him as the people through which this salvation was going to come. And that, you know, when we look at Jesus... When we look at what he has done for us, what he has done on the cross and his atonement for sin, he is the wisdom, uh, the full breadth of the wisdom of God, um, totally. And he is dependable in that sense. But I think we see here a picture that God is actually, through his people, has shown that he is full of surprises. That no matter what he reveals to us in goodness, that we still don't have the full picture of what this is going to mean yet. When he's talking about the re- restoring the fortunes of Israel, he is talking total restoration. All effects of sin 
everything. This is something that is still out in the future. This is still something to long for and still something to be curious about. But in the meantime, that this Jesus is sitting on the throne in Zion right now. He is sitting high above every authority, every ruler, and everything that happens now is a pathway from the point we're in now of further revealing the fruits of his grace to us until we culminate in the end. And so I think here's the point. Even now, even now when we groan and we have a groaning, we have a looking forward to what we're going to have, we also have an expectation of joy right now. Because God dwells in our midst. He dwells on the throne in grace. He is our champion even still that is further being revealed, the wonder that he is. And I think this invites curiosity into our own lives. Like rather than cynicism of how everything is bad, it makes us ask, how is he at work? How is he at work reconciling us right now? What are the evidences of um, the goodness that he has promised, that he is even now instilling in us that will ultimately um, come good and come to its full extent in the end? He gives us hope. And so hope is actually something. Joy, the end of this, he says, let Jacob rejoice. I mean, this is almost like when this happens, it is a sure thing um, that we have the taste of now. Let Israel rejoice. And so without dismissing our longings, without dismissing the hurt that we have, what he wants from us now is to rejoice. That we would eagerly look to him for joy. Because he has covenanted himself to you, and he will do you good. Let's pray together uh, that he would work that deep into our souls. Father, you know our minds and hearts, and you know our wounds. Uh, You know where we are groaning under the wake, uh, the pressure um, of the evil that we see around us. Father, taking you took the full brunt of all of this onto yourself. And you have clothed us inside yourself, and we know that's true. But we need your spirit to encourage us. So I pray for myself, I pray for everybody in this room, um, that you would give us, this week even, just a little bit of the taste of the joy that you are even now working uh, into the world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.